following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Thank you, Reuben. Um, it's good to be back. I can see the symmetry between Revelation 6 and Revelation 19. Two white horses and dead bodies everywhere. So thanks, Reuben. Um, deeply appreciate these passages that you put me onto. Um, so we're looking at Revelation 19, um, starting at verse 11 and going through to the end of 21. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, and we'll read it together. Revelation has lots of fantastic um, images in it, and it's been the inspiration of a lot of Christian songs, a lot of the passages in Scripture, um, but not this one. So there's a challenge for some songwriters. We'll read it together. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly in mid-heaven, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and their riders, flesh of all, both free and slave, both small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed in its presence the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were killed by the sword of the rider on the horse, the sword that comes from his mouth, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help to understand this passage. But we do believe deeply and are convinced that, as John said, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, that this is your revelation, and it reveals you, Lord Jesus. So as we open your scriptures, can you give us wisdom in carefully dividing the word of truth? And can you give us inspiration from your spirit to walk in its ways for the sake of your gospel? Amen. Um, my wife is currently learning New Zealand Sign Language. Um, she's training at AUT to be a sign language interpreter and to work within um, the deaf community. And it's been interesting because as she's got more involved in the deaf community, we've been drawn as a family into being involved with the deaf community. And we've found lots of fascinating and surprising things. So I'm trying to learn sign language and stuttering my way around, um, and the deaf community are being incredibly gracious and generous in, in helping me out with that. But uh, what we've found really interesting, because we have a home group, our home group is with the deaf, is that there's passages of Scripture that I see in new ways now. So, you know, in Revelation, it talks about to the, to the seven churches, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Before, to me, I just walked past that. I thought it was a, a fantastic passage. Now, I find it troubling as I sit with people who can't hear 
whoever has ears, let them hear. See, where you stand often determines what you see. Uh, you know, in the Psalms, there, there, so there's positives as well. So in the Psalms, you have the refrain throughout the Psalms often of Selah. You've seen that within the Psalms? And Eugene Peterson basically says, I think, we're not quite sure exactly what it means, but basically it means shut up. Um, something, you know, a near equivalent, shut up. And so learning actually that the deaf community have a lot to offer us about what silence is and its gift. These are things I'd never seen before within the Scriptures because where you stand determines what you see. And that that is incredibly true as we read through this passage together this morning, as we engage in these Scriptures, particularly this one on judgment. There are often, I think, there's two equal errors in interpreting this passage. Um, and they share the same problem, is that they stand in a certain place, and it means because of where they stand, they only see certain things. Because we, on the whole, stand within fairly comfortable nations, fairly wealthy within the world's scale, and within New Zealand as one of the most peaceful nations in the world, we often see things differently in this text. And so traditional interpretations that have come from the Western world of this very passage we're looking at this morning is that this is the passage about Armageddon. All right? This is the passage about World War III. This is Jesus' war on terror. And we tend to think that Jesus' war on terror is a lot like our war on terror. And so you see images about Holocaust, you know, nuclear mushrooms, massive bombs dropping, fighter jets flying through the air and shooting down the enemies, and that the enemies of God are the same as our enemies. So over time, they have traditionally been Russia, um, or then they've morphed into being China, and more recently, they've morphed into being the Arabs. Where, because of where we stand, we read this passage in a certain way. Does that make sense? And so we read from our context and see in it something very different than what Jesus intended, I think. Because we interpret it most often that we are on the balconies of heaven out of the suffering, watching God give his comeuppance on all the people we never liked anyway. But Barbara Rossing gives this interesting quote. She says, Today's Christian fixation on Armageddon and war is a sickness, even while it might be thrilling and entertaining. That we are used to certain forms of power. We are used to certain use of weapons. And we see that within this text. We read it into this text. For God so loved the world, he declared World War III on it. That becomes the way we understand these passages. So that's one error, I think, is reading Jesus' war on terror as our war on terror. And the other is that we tend to see Jesus as a bit like the nanny. You know, we live in safe and secure places. I haven't been the victim of much violence. I haven't been the victim of uh, much terror. And so I tend to think that this passage, Jesus is being a little harsh. I would much rather that Jesus was like the nanny, you know, saying to the dragon, now dragon, you know when you killed all those people of God earlier in the chapters? Well, that really hurt them. And dragon, it's not acceptable. Now go and sit on the naughty step, dragon. Or to say to the kings of the earth, 
we wish that Jesus would, would, would kind of give them a bit of a stern talking to and say, now promise that you will be good boys. And then we move on from there. Because that's, I'm not used to, I've never been the victim of violence. I've never been the victim of genocide. But again, where we stand determines what we see within the texts. We read into it our hopes and our dreams. Because actually this passage doesn't offer either of those things. It stands between, you would have seen last week, or into Revelation 18, the great funeral dirge of Babylon. You remember that? The, the, in chapter 18 is this funeral for Babylon as God casts the city of man down. God judges Babylon. So that's in chapter 18. And then on to chapter 20 is the establishment of the new Jerusalem. And in between those two great cities, because Revelation has a tale of two cities, Babylon and the new Jerusalem. Babylon being Rome and any beastly forms of authority and power. And the new Jerusalem, the city of God, established by God and God's ways. And we stand in the middle as God judges Babylon and brings a, about the destruction of God's enemies. Revelation has been a journey of exodus out of the empire of Babylon. Come out of her, my people, you hear in Revelation 18. And then later on, as you go into 20 and 21, 22, you'll hear, come into the new Jerusalem. We're to come out of the ways of beastly power and wealth and luxury and violence and come into God's ways of land power. In this passage, Jesus is depicted as the heavenly warrior coming to make war against God's enemies. And it echoes Isaiah 63, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. But what John does is to subvert this. Because the question I have is, if Jesus uses more power against Babylon, then isn't God just a bigger beast? If Jesus uses the same kind of power to defeat his enemies. Isn't God just a bigger beast? But actually what we find in Revelation is that Jesus' war on terror is not the same as ours. As Reuben said in Revelation 6, we saw the rider on the white horse and it imaged Rome coming as a conqueror bent on conquest. And we saw this, where this goes. It goes to war, then famine, um, then plagues, and then death. That's what happens when you are bent on conquest. And so Revelation parodies this rider on the white horse in chapter 6. With the rider on the white horse here in 19, this one is called Faithful and True. And there's a deliberate subversion going on. Here is the true victor in Revelation. We open the book and we see that Jesus is already riding the white horse. And white in Revelation is an image for victory. So those who overcome are given white. Um, Caesar used to come riding a white horse for victory. And here Jesus is seen on the white horse, victorious before the battle's even begun. That's really key. Before the battle begins, Jesus is riding a white horse. He's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is different than the way of Rome that judges and makes war through iniquity. This is the war of righteousness. And Jesus sees with these blazing eyes that separates the deception of the beast and of Rome to show the truth. 
The dragon and the beast have been pictured as having seven crowns, seven diadems, and then the, the sea dragon had ten diadems. And we hear about Jesus here. He's the one who has many crowns, many diadems. This is the true king. And then it goes on to say in verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So Jesus turns up to a battle with robes that are already dipped in blood. Before any battle has begun, his robes are dipped in blood. And the image I think that John is playing on here is that Jesus has already fought the battle. He turns up in robes that are dipped in his own blood. And through his faithful life, death, and resurrection, he has already fought the battle, which is why he is already riding on a white horse. The battle has already been waged. And the way that Jesus wages the battle is not with a great mighty sword or a jet plane or nuclear holocaust. No, Jesus wages war with his powerful word, the sword that comes out from his mouth. That's how Jesus defeats the nation, with his powerful word. And as for the great war that we were all hoping for, well, it's a fizzer. It's a fizzer. If you read in 18 and into 19, uh, sorry, reading in 19, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and against his army. You know, here's, dun, dun, dun. You know, here's, the, here's the mounting tension. And then the next sentence, oh, and, and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet. See, in our understanding of Revelation, there's parts that are missing. I mean, there's a whole scene missing with nuclear bombs and fighter jets. And No, there is no war. Jesus has already won the battle. And all he does is speak with his powerful word, and it is the end of it. The deceptions are exposed, the lies are exposed, as he speaks his powerful word of truth. The battle has already been won through the faithful life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And Jesus now comes, as to use Karl Barth's phrase, the judged judge. He comes here to meter out God's justice as the one who has been judged in our place. The judge judge. And that changes our understanding of judgment. Jesus comes having conquered the ways of the beast, the ways of imperial Roman power by refusing to participate in those kind of ways. He's overcome them by holding fast to the ways of God and lamb power. And he offers the judgment of God as the judged judge. And so David Barr, Barr says this, basically. What we find is John reworking the image. It's not about the cosmic battle to come, it's about the battle that has been won. That Jesus is already victorious, and that this has reworked the image out of Isaiah 63 of treading the winepress of the fury of God. He comes as the judged judge. But at the same time, to those of us who like the image of the nanny, um, there is judgment. Judgment is reworked, but it is judgment in this passage. See, if God lets the bullies and the torturers of this world have their own way and just simply sits them on the naughty step for a little while, then actually there is no justice at all. God doesn't take seriously the pain of the genocide that's happened around the world and continues to happen today. 
It might be something that we're embarrassed about to hear about the justice and judgment of God, but to many millions of people around the world, it is good news that God does not let the torturers and the bullies off the hook. God will not allow them to continue on wreaking havoc upon His world. God will hold them to account. To the millions of people who have lost their fathers and their sons and their brothers at the hands of political dictators, it is good news that even though the world doesn't notice, God does. To those who are homeless, it is good news that God sees them. To the victims of genocide, to the millions of missing the unnamed millions who just go missing. It is good news that God does not turn a blind eye to them. And for some of you, this may be an image of comfort. Perhaps you've experienced significant pain. It is good news to know that God upholds justice and judgment, that Jesus can see through the deceptions of this world. The judgments of Revelation are not the vindictive acts of a capricious God. They are the vindicating acts of a just God. God isn't capricious. God vindicates through justice. In 2008, I was working as a pastor in Napier, and there was a group of us who quite liked rugby league, and the Warriors had made it through into the semi-finals. And, uh, and so we came up as a group to watch the semi-final um, and then drive back Saturday night so that I could preach on Sunday morning. Um, and, and so we came up on the Friday and we stayed the night and I said, right, well, you know, I grew up in South Auckland, we've got to stay in South Auckland and we're going to stay in Manukau, which is, you know, capital of South Auckland. So we stayed in Manukau. And the next day, because, you know, in Napier there's no escalators and things, we thought, great, let's go and have a look at the mall for a bit of novelty. And um, as we were driving around the mall in Manukau, there was this huge queue of people out of one of the shops. This is in 2008. Um, you know, 50, 60, 70 people queuing out of the shop. We thought, man, we're going to have to go there. There's obviously a sale on. But as we looked more closely, we saw that it was a money shop. And they were offering next week's wages for this weekend. And I don't know how the global financial crisis affected you, but the first people it affects are the poor. They are the ones to stand outside in a queue with a handout needing money to make it through the weekend. And so for me, there is this sense that as we read Scripture, as we engage in Christian faith, where you stand determines what you see. Hey. Martin Neumüller was a, was a um, German pastor during the reign of Hitler, and he was one of the very few pastors to speak out against the injustices that Hitler was metering out. And as a result, he was put in prison. And the, the prison chaplain was doing the rounds. And he came to Naimullah and he said, Martin, you're a man of the cloth. What are you doing in here? Why are you in here? To which Naimullah replied, the question isn't why am I in here? The question is, why aren't you? Where we stand determines what we see. Where we stand determines what we see. In this passage, it is about the judgment of truth in a world of deception. And I know that Reuben has spoken around consumerism and this insatiable drive within our Western culture for more, relentlessly more. And Jesus says to us, come out of her. 
come out of luxurious living, come out of systems based upon power inequalities, come out of her and come into the way of God, the new Jerusalem. That's the exodus that Jesus is taking us on. This passage stands as a stern warning for those of us who have settled down in the world, learned how to get on and make, make hay while the sun shines. Those of us who are in danger of colluding with the beast and beastly ways that are obsessed about power and wealth and advantage and luxury, those of us who have settled down and colluded with that empire are in danger. And these judgment passages are a stern warning to come out of her, my people. Revelation images two suppers in chapter 19. The first supper Reuben spoke on last week, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here in verse 17, we hear about, come gather for the great supper of God. At this, at the first one, we are invited to the meal. In the second one, those who have colluded with Babylon, they are the meal. Two great suppers. And those who are the ones that are judged, well, it's actually everyone. Read in, chapter eight, in verse 18, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all, both free and slave, small and great, any who have colluded with the empire. Come out of her, is the cry of revelation, and come into the new Jerusalem. Jesus is leading us on a new exodus, out of the empire and into the ways of God. Judgment throughout these books, throughout the book of Revelation, is not because God just likes to do it. It's to, to, to turn our hard hearts to the ways of God. Come out of my, her, my people, is the cry. It's a terrifying vision to shock us out of colluding. And I think the other thing we have to hold in tension as we read chapter 19 particularly, is that the book doesn't finish with this vision of judgment. So often, as we read it, we finish at 19. Oh, God judges, and there's this huge war, and the birds gorge on flesh. Now, that's penultimate. The ultimate vision of Revelation goes on into 20, 21, and 22. The establishment of God's just reign upon the earth. The return of Christ and the renewal of all things. And the establishment of what Walter Brueggemann calls a detoxified world. A detoxified world as the judged judge comes and meters out the justice of God. Craig Keener talks about, one of the commentators I read, Craig Keener talked about um, being in a car and he sees, um, he sees a bumper sticker that says, visualize world peace. And he thinks, how insipid, how disgusting. You know, that could only happen in, in one of these safe and peaceful nations, couldn't it? Visualize world peace. Have you ever tried to stop a tank by visualizing world peace? But then he thought about it more and he thought, actually, no, there's something fairly profound about this. And he wrote, hopefully, a quote. Yay. He said, those who can dream of a world without war, violence, prejudice, or poverty can no longer devote themselves to anything but bringing that vision into reality. See, what Revelation is trying to do is to offer us a place to stand, to see the world differently. Because where we stand determines what we see. And in this passage, 
if you go on, how, how Revelation's been structured in chapter 4. In chapter 4, John's been told, um, after this I looked and there before me was a door, just a door, standing open in heaven. And he goes into that. He's, he's called on this journey to go um, kind of higher up and deeper in. And then in 15, after this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple. And it was opened. And here in 19, I saw heaven standing open. So what begins as a door and moves to a temple, now the whole of heaven is opened up. And John and we are called to come on up to see the world how God sees it. That's the offer of the vision of Revelation, to see the world rightly. Literally, apocalypse means pulling back the curtains to be and stand with God and to see the world rightly. John wants to cultivate this great vision in us so that we will live for nothing else. To cultivate the vision of a new heavens and a new earth, a detoxified world. John wants us to see the world how God sees it because he knows that where you stand determines what you see. If we can stand with God and his just judge, then we will see the world differently. Let me finish with the story of Tolkien talking to C.S. Lewis. This was the night before C.S. Lewis became a Christian. And um, Lewis would ask a question of Tolkien, and, um, and, and Tolkien would offer an answer, and then C.S. Lewis would offer another question, and this went on all night as Lewis was fighting back and forth about this Christian faith, wrestling with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, uh, and Tolkien said this to C.S. Lewis, um, to C.S. Lewis. He said, your inability to understand stems from a failure of imagination on your part. Tolkien to C.S. Lewis, your inability to, to understand stems from a failure of imagination on your part. See, John wants to cultivate in us an imagination that comes from standing where God is, to see the world how God does. Because John knows that where you stand determines what you see. And may God give us eyes to see the world how Christ sees it and to live out of that reality. Let's pray. Loving God, we shrink from passages about judgment because we are so used to safety and security. If we have cuddled up to this world in ways that take advantage of it whilst betraying the name of Jesus, can you forgive us? And can you restore in us a passion to be a people who see the world rightly and well, to see the world how you do? For others, Lord, there may be those who have suffered significantly. Can you reassure them of your comfort and grace that you see even though no other may do, and that Jesus Christ will hold up the justice of God as the just judge. Shape us, Lord, to be a people for the new Jerusalem who have come out of Babylon. For Jesus' sake, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.